I'm Paul Watson, and um, thank you for coming to this uh, event. And um, me and Seth uh, Burkett first talked about doing this event a few months ago, and uh, I was pretty confident nobody would turn up, so I um, sort of left the organisation entirely to him uh, and turned up, and now there's sort of about 65 people here, so sort of wishing I'd prepared uh, more of an introduction than this. Um, but I can very honestly say that I'm delighted to be talking on the same bill as uh, some of my favourite authors and coaches tonight. Um, Seth, um, well, Seth was the, f the first professional British player in Brazil, um, which is a pretty big achievement, really. Um, he wrote a fantastic book about it called The Boy in Brazil, um, and... I've bought it for more or less everybody I know for their birthday for the last three or four years. So uh, <laughs> if you know me, you've, you've read the book. Um, and we also have, um, we are here with uh, Stephen Constantine, who um, is uh, the, I think he's the English coach who's coached the most national teams. Uh, I believe that's true. Um, he's coached in places that, basically nobody would want to coach in. He's now currently coaching somewhere a lot of people would want to coach in. He's coaching India uh, and doing a really good job. We were quite surprised he could make it, um, but we were very lucky he's here to get his visa renewed. So uh, <laughs> it happens to all of us at some point. Um, so we're the beneficiaries of his administrative nightmare. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a real... Um, exciting thing to have him here he's um very much an inspiration to any any british coach or player who's been abroad uh, at some time will have come across someone who's met him uh, he's one of those names that you just hear again and again in, in very nice ways um and finally on the on the bill is uh james montague who is dubbed quite a lot of the time or i'm not sure if it's by him or by other people he's dubbed the indiana jones of football writing uh, I don't think it's due to battling Nazis or sort of uncovering implausible treasures. Uh, it's, it's probably just because he goes, to, again, to places that most people won't go to. So he's recently done a piece in North Korea, which probably everybody here read. Um, and, um, yeah, it's great to be here because uh, I'm recommended to buy his first book. Uh, well, it's, no, his third book. I'm recommended to buy 31 Nil um, pretty much every week on Amazon. Um, so it's nice to actually be here in person to tell him that I have bought it and been given it about nine times by well-meaning relatives at Christmas. So uh, his is the book I've received with the least enthusiasm, but for a very nice reason. Um, so um, as would be customary with the way that I've introduced everyone, James is going to be first up uh, to talk, and um, I think he's ready. Um, he's produced a slide, so he must be ready. So James Montague. produce a slide that's just this one unfortunately but uh thank you very much i've always wanted to kind of be the warm-up act at the social so this is this is kind of a dream come true but um and this is the longest room i've ever been in this is incredible but um thank you all for coming and thank you for the for the introduction i'm sorry that i've ruined several christmases with getting my terrible book delivered to you but um so today's about kind of or this evening's about football adventures so I mean, all of us in our own way are kind of people that have been involved in football adventures. I'm, I'm a journalist. I travel around and kind of write about football in, in odd places. This picture was taken in 2007 at the uh, Akhli Zamalek derby, uh, which is the big derby in Cairo. And um, 
when uh, we've got a coach here, uh, we've got a player here. So we, we all wonder about football and adventures. Why did we first get into football and how did, why, is, why did we decide to go out of the country? Why did we decide to go around the world and do things? And for me, football isn't just a game. And I love it. I, mean, I, I don't know if there are any Millwall fans here, but I'm a, I'm a West Ham fan, so don't hold that against me. But uh, uh, So, uh, you know, everyone hates us and we don't care. Yeah, right. right. Um, so I, 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 I've always loved football. But for me, uh, football has been something that represents and reflects something really important about society. And I think it's been really underused as something to look at the world, as a lens of looking at how things uh, are done in the world. And anyone who's read David Goldblatt and Simon Cooper, I think, you know, are aware that this is something that is, is it's kind of it's starting to be done. But that's what I, I saw. And I wanted to travel. And I found myself in the Middle East. And I remember the first time, it was kind of this eureka moment when I realised you could explain a country and its politics and its people. I mean, you, don't, you can't dilute everything down to it, but you can, you, you know, a very important issue that is somehow representative of a place. And I remember the first time this happened, I found myself in Yemen. And that's a place now that we see is kind of obviously being virtually destroyed by US and, and UK made weapons via Saudi and the UAE. But for me, when I, when I moved to the Middle East for the first time in 2004, I found this very small newspaper story, and it changed my life. And it was a newspaper story that said that the entire Olympic team of Yemen had been banned from competing in the Olympics because they'd all failed a drugs test, every single one of them. And I thought, well, this, how, how, do you, how does an entire team uh, fail a drugs test? So... I looked into it, and it turns out that everybody had been taking, essentially, Meow Meow. <laughs> but it wasn't Meow Meow. The active ingredient in Meow Meow is naturally found in uh, a, a leaf drug called Cat, which you can occasionally find in some places in West London, uh, although it's very expensive and very difficult to find, but you can find it. Uh, and it grows only at a certain altitude at certain places, in Yemen and in Kenya and in, uh, and in other places on the Horn of Africa. And this drug was basically destroying the country. People were chewing it and just sleeping for the rest of the afternoon. Economic productivity was down. Um, nobody would grow crops. There was a massive issue about uh, water security. Uh, they would change from growing arable crops to making cats because that's what people wanted every day because it's a highly addictive drug. And so it turned out that the entire Yemen Olympic football team was chewing and off their minds on cat. So I thought, okay, well, let's, let's go to Yemen. It's only a two-hour flight. I can go there. Um, you know, it was, there, was, there, was a, there was an easy jet-type surface there, so it was, it was incredibly easy to get there. Get to Yemen, go there, and I meet... I will never forget this man, Hamad, who was the general secretary of the Yemen Football Association. And this guy was like the Elliot Ness of, of Yemeni football. He was out there to clean up Yemeni football. These people will not be chewing cat anymore... I mean, it, it didn't help that everybody who was around him had this bulbous cheek, which if you ever saw in Yemen, you could tell this kind of wide-eyed, glassy stare and this kind of, like, big cheek full of, full of, uh, full of leaves in, 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 the, in the pocket there. And so he, but he, was, he was clean. This was a clean man. He was gonna, and, they, and they took me around and they showed me. And it was amazing going around Sana'a, this old city, beautiful city. They have uh, basically skyscrapers made out of mud, or they did do until very recently. Um, it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to. And talking to them, although it, it's a tribal society, uh, it's a society that's been divided between north and south, um, 
it seemed to be that the issue that really defined them at that moment was Cat. And so I followed him around as he tried to clean up, uh, clean up the country, clean up the, the, the football association, tried to clean up all these national team players because they believed they had the best footballers in the world. And so we went around, he showed me it, and then afterwards, after we saw a league match, after we'd met some national team players, the team doctor, everything that they went, he took me back to his house, sat me down, and gave me a massive bag of cats <laughs> that we could all chew together. And we chewed it. And I can tell you, it's pretty fucking good. Uh, it, that's why I left quite soon afterwards, because I think there could have been some issues. But we chewed into the night, and everything could be solved. Everything. We thought, like, how do we solve Yemeni football? We could, we could sell the TV rights like they do in the Premier League. We could, like, you know what, we could, we could get, why don't we get Real Madrid? Pay for Real Madrid to come to your son after. Yeah, 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 yeah. And as his friends came in, they were all chewing cat. We are all agreeing that this is how we sort things out. And then we ran out of cat, and then the crash came. And I can tell you, it is a pretty harsh come down. It's kind of like taking kind of very kind of, I don't know, micro doses of ecstasy with really strong skunk. It's kind of like you're kind of up and down at the same time. And football players were taking this stuff before they started playing because they thought it gave them a bit more oomph. So at the time, I think they were ranked 200 in the world by FIFA, so obviously it wasn't going so well. But, you know, it showed me that if I wanted to understand a country, and, and I mean, in the end, I left, and, and there was an incident at the airport where somebody basically tried to mug me with his knife. Uh, and so I haven't been back since. But uh, it was, it did show me that if I wanted to understand a place, this football story, this throwaway two-paragraph story that, like, everybody would have... Most people would have just, just looked past it. It's just a kind of AP piece of copy. That, that, to me, once you look kind of delved into it, that told me what I needed to know about football and what it can do. And I thought, yes, I'm going to write a book about Middle Eastern football. Nobody's ever thought about this, about football before and politics and all this. And then I discovered that Simon Cooper had, had written a book about it 10 years previously which kind of like stopped me in my tracks. But I kept going, and I, and I, and I ended up writing a book about it. And then the, then the other issue is, once we, each one of us, think about why we came to football, why did we decide to go to these places? Why did we decide to travel? Why did we decide to have adventures in this way? I mean, whatever adventures mean, it could, be mean, it could mean anything. I mean, an adventure could be taking the mega bus from Torquay to Carlisle. I don't think I'd recommend that to anybody. I think I'd rather go to Syria than do that, but... Um, the, the, you know, so why do these adventures? And as a journalist, I mean, we're all going to have different reasons for it. But for me, the only thing that has currency is if you are as close as possible to the story. And short of having a kind of black mirror type internal soul sharing your space where you can see what the other person is seeing, the only way you can do that is by being there, getting there, smelling it, feeling it, tasting it. And I think that's what being a football fan is about is feeling it and tasting it and wanting to be as close to the action as possible and that's that's basically the reason why i decided to to do what i did and i think this might be i mean they'll explain for themselves but they have very similar reasons too um but ultimately when you decide to do this when you decide to go out and be proximate to stories and people. And I don't, I don't really like using the word stories because they're not stories. These are people's lives. You are, you, are, you are a guest. It's a window in a very long process of somebody's life. And you are just a guest in it. And so 
saying that it's a story is, is, is probably the wrong kind of word, but when you're that close to people, you learn and you feel everything that they feel and you begin to... Um, you have to keep a little bit of journalistic, of course, integrity and keep your weight, yourself back. But you have to throw yourself into it. And this is the next story I want to talk about, which is Egypt, which is probably the best example of that. And um, Egypt, for many people, they've seen the Tahrir Square revolution. They saw what happened with those people, decided that they're going to overthrow Hosni Mubarak, who ran a police state and uh, a failing economy. And these young people rose up and, and overthrew this police state. It was, a, it was a beautiful, incredible moment. And football played a really important part in that revolution. And it played a really important part in that story. And this, sto- this picture was taken very, very, like in 2007. So this was the worst of the Mubarak era when I went to the Akhli uh, Zamalek derby. But at this game, I also met the, the ultras of Al-Alhi called uh, the Akhlawi. And these guys, this was their first, uh, the first event they ever had. At the Cairo International Stadium, you can see the police in the background. I mean, he, I, I, I've never seen this kid before again, but I imagine if he's smoking at that rate, I mean, he can't be, he's not going to survive much past 30. But, um, but I saw, uh, I met the, these guys. This was their first ever game that they were going to have, this Akhli Zamalek derby. And these ultras were going to set up a kind of, an ultras group that was a little bit like an Italian football club, uh, set of ultras, you know, they're going to be not really political, but they're going to have TFOs and they're going to have stuff. There was maybe there was maybe two hundred of them there. When the revolution came, what happened was that that group had got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And because the terraces, the football terraces in the Middle East, are often seen as a kind of a space that you know, this is where the degenerates go. You know, every single form of public space in Egypt had been cracked down by the by the, by the state. Um, the only two places that weren't were the mosque and the football stadiums. And within those football stadiums, a revolutionary kind of anti-establishment fervor was really beginning to boil up. And so when the revolution came, when you saw those people going into Tahrir Square and you saw activists, uh, Islamists, um, normal people, taxi drivers going into the square, who was it that was protecting them from the police? Who was it that was on the front line? who had spent the past few years fighting the police at football stadiums. It was the ultras of Zamalek and Al-Akhli. And so to tell this story, I basically I spent well over five, six years. I mean, I, went to, uh, I, was, I was spent a lot of time in the post-revolutionary phase in, in, uh, in Cairo. And it was, it was probably one of the most beautiful moments of freedom I've ever felt. In that, in that kind of, it, it was dangerous, there's no doubt about it. I had my wallet stolen, which I was very angry about. You know, everyone's a liberal until they get their wallet stolen. Like, bring back Mubarak, you know. But the, it, it, there was, there was a, um, so, so it never got that back. But it was, it was one of the most beautiful things I've, I've ever felt. And there was a time when I was covering this story that I thought I hadn't seen a football match for about two years in Egypt because, the, because it was so dangerous for the authorities that they, banned, they essentially banned football games, banned, then banned fans from going to them, then banned fans from going to the... Uh, uh, going to international games and in this post-revolutionary period uh, these guys played this very important role they they, they were then the gatekeepers in the post-revolutionary period whenever um, there were protests they were there they were there they were there at the front and they became the kind of the banners their songs became the songs of the revolution their banners became the banners of the revolution and then what happened February the 1st and we just had the anniversary of it in 2000 uh, February the 1st 2012 
was the Port Said massacre, which is when 72 young men went to a football match, Alakli fans, and uh, they were killed. And to this day, the evidence points to a state conspiracy, effectively, or certainly a kind of police conspiracy, um, that this was punishment. They allowed these men, these young men, and these they were all under 30, uh, to die because of the role they played in the revolution. And now a lot of these, these young people are uh, considered terrorists in Egypt because now we have a counter-revolution, CC's in charge. And I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that um, the proximity that you s of a story, it's not a story, you're just a, a guest in people's lives. Um, it can also, it's not just uplifting, it's not just uh, euphoric, it's not just about victory or defeat, and it's not just about sport. You see people carrying bodies in the streets. You see some of the most horrific things that humans can do. But if you really want to reflect their experience, you have to be there. You have to be there to see it, and you have to be there. And, of course, there is a slight positive end to this because Egypt does qualify for the World Cup in 2018. I mean, you know, the political system's a mess, but those players that I met during the qualification 2014, Mohamed Salah being one of them, um, you know, that who, can, who can begrudge that moment when he scores that penalty in Congo with the first match where the fans are properly allowed into the Borja Arab Stadium, 80,000 people. It's an absolutely beautiful, beautiful moment. Um, but I talked a little bit also about when stories begin and when stories end, and they never really end. And, I mean, everything has a beginning, I suppose, but nothing really has an end. And the next thing I want to talk about is... Has anybody watched Next Goal Wins? Two, three, four? It's, it, it's one of my favourite films. You can see me in the background in some of them, some of the shots, because I really fuck the shots up for the guy. So it's about the American Samoa national team. And the American Samoa national team, I, I write a lot about underdogs, and um, my second book was 31 nil. And 31 nil is the world record score uh, well, world record defeat that American Samoa conceded to Australia. Uh, well, I mean, uh, there's, a, there's an interesting story because I, end up, I, I met, uh, 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 what's his name? Uh, uh, Dick Advocar. And Dick Advocar dropped two of the Australian Rangers players because they were so, uh, he was so livid that they'd gone on and scored 32 goals. So I think Craig Moore and who was it? Uh, uh, no, Arch Thompson wasn't playing for Rangers then. But he. He was so angry with them that, they, you know, so... But anyone who knows Australians and cricket will know, of course, they'll just, they'll just grind you into the ground. They're not going to stop. There's going to be no gamesmanship. There's gonna, oh, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and so this is a story that also told me a little bit about how um, you're just walking into something that is, has 10 years past and 10 years in the future. And I, I, I wanted to get... When I was writing 31 Nil, I wanted to get to see American Samoa. You cannot write a book about 31-0 and not go and see the worst national team in the world. So eventually I, ma I managed to get myself to Samoa, which is a different place. It's a country. Uh, uh, American Samoa is part of the United States. But, but I mean, you'd be surprised. Even they made that mistake. The reason why they lost 31-0 was because all the players, the senior players, FIFA took a look at their passports and they said, oh no, you're Samoans. You're not American Samoans. And so, you're, so they had to play the American Samoan under-19 team. And that's why they got hammered. So even they were getting confused between the American Samoan and Samoan uh, players. And so I, I decided to go. And I arrived uh, the day before the American Samoa's first match against Tonga. 
They're playing Tonga, Cook Islands, and, uh, and Samoa to make things even more complicated. And I got there, and the first thing I saw was this angry coach called Thomas Rongen. He was like a, he was like a, a Dutch guy, uh, played in the Ajax youth team, uh, and he was, uh, you know, he sat me down, he said, yeah, you know, these guys, you know, they're, they're 10, 15, 20 pounds overweight, they're shoveling, uh, uh, they're shoveling fast food into their mouths, and I've knocked them into shape, and we have a woman playing at centre-back. And as he's saying that, this very beautiful woman walks past, and he goes, yeah, that's, that's Jaya Salua. And Jaya Salua, uh, it turns out, is transgender, but in Polynesian culture, it's accepted to have a third sex called the Fafafina. And so they had, essentially, by day, a woman um, who was respected as a woman, uh, was treated as a woman, but at night, when she went to training, she was the starting centre-back for the American Samoa national team. And then also, there was Nikki Salapu. Nikki Salapu was the goalkeeper of that 31-0 defeat. And he was playing in this game as well. And I met him, and this man's life had been destroyed by that 31-0. It had been destroyed. He had been, he lived in Seattle working uh, in a supermarket in a Safeway. And I sat down and spoke to him and he says, my kids, to this, every day people take the piss out of my kids. Well, he didn't say take the piss, but they, they, they mock my kids. You know, they, they, they mock my kids, you know, and they, 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 they make jokes at my children. And he was ashamed. And that was the reason why he was back because he thought, I've got to make one last victory. So ever since we all saw the 31-0 or the people that saw the 31-0, thing in 2001 it was a kind of and finally a jokey thing a jokey thing that we all laughed about ha 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 look at these terrible people playing football but this guy lived it he lived that scars of every one of those goals and I can tell you if you've ever watched that game it would have been 41-0 if it wasn't for him the first 10 minutes was an absolute onslaught and he made some incredible saves <laughs> so I go to the first game and they're playing Tonga there's 20, I think maybe 25 people in the stands. The J.S. Blatter Stadium in Appia. <laughs> there was no statue to him, nothing like that, don't worry. And, and, we, we, and I'm standing on the, on the touchline, and because there's no other journalist there, really, apart from this film crew for, uh, who are making what becomes Next Goal Wins, and they were like, oh, yeah, it's really cool, there's another British guy here, but really they were like, fucking hell like get out of my shot because I was always there with my camera kind of like in the dressing room and like kind of, you know ruining their stuff but they made a great film out of it in the end and I watched this game and Jaya Salu is man of the match and she sets up the first goal uh, they go 2-0 up and then Tonga score with about 10 minutes to go and it's all one way I mean it is some of the worst football I've ever seen in my life but that's not important that's not what's important you know <laughs> And maybe it is, but it wasn't then. <laughs> and, and, and then the, the, the final whistle gets blown. And I have never felt anything like that before. I mean, I've seen, I've been at moments which were incredibly emotional. I, I was in the locker room when Libya qualified for the African Cup of Nations, which was during the war. And a lot of the players had been, had been fighting in the front line had deposed Gaddafi and had come back to fight. I mean, it was just an incre like, incredible story. This was even better than that because in the middle you had, you had this guy who was on his knees crying, you know, the goalkeeper, Nicky Salapu, because there was, he, he, he literally, you, talk, you hear a lot about redemption in American films and journalism, but this was redemption. This was, a, this was one of the most beautiful human moments I've ever seen. And that's when you kind of 
realise when he's crying, and I remember interviewing him and him telling, like, this is, it's over, it's over. And they'd won their first game. But what was he saying? You know, he was still had his mind 10 years previously. And so, for me, that that's the biggest thing, is that these are football adventures, but they're, they're also life stories. And you just have this little window. And I guess the last thing I want to talk about is luck as well. Because, I mean, this, a lot of this is capturing kind of lightning in the bottle. And that doesn't really happen very often. I mean, if I hadn't been there and I hadn't seen that, then, you know, I mean, I'd have watched Next Goal Wins and I'd found out about it anyway, I suppose. Uh, I, I would recommend watching it. It is absolutely brilliant. I found out that, they, that apparently there was talk of, of a remake of it. And if anyone who's, who's seen it will know that they were going to um, cast The Rock as, as Thomas Rongen, which, is, which would be... I mean, I, I'd watch that. <laughs> He'd watch it. And uh, so, so... And it is all about luck. And I'm just going to end, because, you know, just talking about some strange stories the last the last trip i just did was uh was in north korea and this was this was probably the most i've been trying to get into north korea for 10 years and i couldn't get into north korea they've got they've got a hotmail address the fa has one hotmail address literally like career fa at hotmail.com and you just email it and they never fucking reply never i've i've sent maybe 50 emails to that address and they have never ever once replied to me so I thought, well, eventually, um, it seemed in 2016 that relations were getting better. This is a time before Trump and all the madness. You know, it looked like they were opening up. There's a bureau for AP had just opened. Uh, it looked like that journalists were allowed in. At one point, I even tried. They had, they had a golf tournament there for amateur golfers, and I'm I'm a shit golfer. But I thought I could probably pay somebody at a golf club in Essex to give me a, give me a certificate that I could get in. Uh, and they, that even failed. Uh, so I, I could not get into North Korea. But it was opening up. They were about to play Malaysia. Fantastic. Go and watch Malaysia play there. And then Kim Jong-un had his half-brother assassinated at the airport in Malaysia by smearing nerve gas on his face. So that got postponed. Um, uh, but eventually, it turned out it got postponed so much that the next game was against Lebanon. So... Um, having written a book about Middle Eastern football, I'd, I'd lived in Lebanon. I knew Lebanon very well. And so I decided I'd go with a tour company and uh, I would just try my luck and go in and see what happens. And I met the, the Lebanese team. And the first thing you realise with the Lebanese team is that their star striker is uh, American. And two days previously, um, America had just banned all Americans from going in North Korea because of the Otto Weinbier incident where the, that unfortunate young kid basically was killed for stealing a poster in North Korea so all these Lebanese guys were absolutely terrified going in and we go in and on the second day they explode the H-bomb so suddenly you're in North Korea you're there to cover a football match with these kind of terrified young men of the Lebanese national team and every time you turn on the television and, and you can get a little bit of news because Russia Today is allowed in there so I mean which you I mean usually you that is that's going through the looking glass but, you know, I, you know, you go, you, you, you know and these, these terrified guys, but it was, it was absolute blind luck. So suddenly what turned out to be, would have been an interesting story, it would have been an interesting football adventure, became something completely different. Suddenly you're in the, in the eye of this kind of international storm. But also, you then discover something about North Korea that I don't think you can find from any other uh, cultural totem, whether it's art or literature or... Uh, music or anything like that 
where do you see North Koreans ever outside of their country? Where do you ever see, apart from missiles, when do you ever see a North Korean entity outside their country? It's only, if we see with the Olympics, when they cross the DMZ and uh, uh, go to South Korea for that, or World Cup qualifiers, or Asian Cup qualifiers. And, that's, and that is the power of football. And in the end, I mean, I had a, I mean it was an insane trip. I mean, they took me to the, to the mausoleum where Kim Il-sung, the grandfather of the nation, is kept there, kind of embalmed, next to Kim Jong-il, who you probably know from Team America. Um, and I can, I can report back that even in death, his hair is magnificent. Really, I mean, it's like this long. I mean, it's incredible. It's like a beaver. Uh, and um, so a lot of this is, I don't, you know, I don't want to, um, you know, I mean, North Korea is a, is a, is a police, is worse than the police state. It's one of the most, it's the worst human rights abusing countries in the world. But there are people there. And through football, I found that I had greater access to people than if you were there as a tourist or if you were there to write something that was very political about a place. You learnt about their songs, how they arrange themselves for the match, how do the players react to a foreign coach giving them orders. These are all things that you could, you could learn through football that would be actually, if you went normally as a, as a correspondent and there'd be nine political journalists there but one sports guy, they'd be like, why is there a sports guy there? makes no sense. But actually, that makes the most sense. Because, I mean, for one, most people think you're an idiot if you're a football journalist, so they think they just leave you alone. But the second thing is, it just gives you this unparalleled... Oh, yes, I mean, yeah, it's true. Um, they give you this unparalleled access, uh, I think, to, to a country and to its people. And so um, I got out alive, obviously. It's not, I'm not a hologram. Um, and the game, in the end, ended 2-2. And it was a fantastic game of football. And if anybody fancies going to North Korea in March, uh, they're playing Hong Kong. Seriously, they're playing Hong Kong, winner-takes-all qualification match for the Asia Cup, and there's a company called Choreo Tours, and they're not paying me to say this, by the way, but they are organising a trip for people to go to North Korea. I think it's like €1,500 to go. But, I mean, you know. But if they don't qualify, who knows what could happen. But um, um, but anyway, um, look, I mean, you're going to hear... People have done much more important and better things in football than I have. But for me, as an, just as an observation, I love the game and I love the world. And I, it, it, the game has given me a, a view in the world that I would, I would have never had. And I'm very grateful for it. And so uh, thank you very much.